Uh, when I moved to the area in 2019, I was very excited to begin exploring the state in which so much of our national and religious history has taken place. Uh, naturally, this meant going to Plymouth and seeing Plymouth Rock for myself. You know, in other parts of the country, we read about Plymouth Rock, and, uh, and we think about these sea-weary pilgrims spying this giant landmark after all of these days at sea with poor food and, and water, uh, this landmark which juts out from the ocean, this giant rock which must have faced wave after storm-induced wave, hammering it over the years, and yet, despite the howling forces of nature, it was the water and the wind which broke upon this majestic rock and not the other way around. But then I went to Plymouth, and no offense if any of you find Plymouth Rock meaningful, uh, I have to admit that I was personally a little disappointed. Uh, if you haven't been there, the rock is about the size of a sea turtle shell. Uh, I think, no, I know that I have larger rocks in my backyard. Um, so that said, uh, our psalmist uses the imagery of a rock very often. Uh, however, Plymouth Rock is not a very good illustration for our psalm this morning. But if you can imagine Plymouth Rock as I imagined it before coming here, then it would be. Uh, because three times David will refer to God as our rock. Let's just look at those real quick in verse 2. Truly God is my rock. Verse 6. Truly he is my rock. And then finally in verse 7. He is my mighty rock. When David is saying this, he's presenting God uh, metaphorically as a rock to us. And it's intended to help us to understand something about God's nature for us. He's immovable, he's unchanging, unflappable, sturdy, strong, eternal, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's one on whom you can rely even when the storms of life are raging around us. The rock stands firm. Uh, the psalm wants us to understand that as Christians, God is our rock. He's just not our Plymouth rock. So here this morning, we are again presented with a David who is facing enemies. And yet, David is unshakable. He's calm. He's peaceful. He's not at all concerned. And what we want to uncover this morning is why. So pick up with me in verse 1. We're going to read the first six verses. Truly, my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from Him. Truly, He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. Yes, my soul. Find rest in God. My hope comes from Him. Truly, He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we profess that You are our rock. You're the rock of ages. 
Jesus, we're so incredibly thankful for all that you've done for us. And this morning, we just pray that you would reveal yourself to us through your word. That we would behold the rock of our salvation and rejoice in how unchanging and dependable you are. I pray that you would empower me by your spirit to preach your truth and give us all ears and hearts to listen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, our first point this morning is peace amid trouble. Uh, What I hope to present to you this morning is a picture of what life can be like for those who trust in Christ. Here in the first six verses, we look at a man who is mature in the faith, one who is resting upon the rock of his salvation. He has peace amid turmoil precisely because he trusts not in himself, but in God. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know where you stand with regard to Jesus Christ, this sermon will not do you too much good as it is addressed to those who already follow Christ. Um, But I think it can be helpful for you, even if you don't yet follow Christ, to uh, consider the message and the lives of those gathered here, hopefully. And, And I hope that you would consider these truths as one of many compelling reasons for placing your faith in Jesus. So let's actually begin in verse 3. Here we find the prompt for our psalm. Verse 3. How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. So David is king of Israel. He has enemies in the nations around him, and he has enemies in his own court, as we saw last week. Despite this, the tenor of our psalm this morning is far more optimistic than what we saw uh, last week. David seems unimpressed with his enemies and confident in God. He has great peace amid the turmoil of life. Uh, now, I grew up in Florida, and as you know, in Florida we have hurricanes. If you've ever watched the Weather Channel, you know that hurricanes are these powerful cyclone storms with winds and rains that they often uh, pick up all of the alligators and sharks and rain them down on unsuspecting pedestrians. They are unstoppable forces of nature's wrath. If you get one that's strong enough, uh, the hurricane will actually form what's called an eye right in the middle of it. And uh, if you were ever to experience that, Uh, The storm comes by, you've got these 150 mile an hour sustained winds, uh, but within the very center of the hurricane, if it came over you, you would look up and you would see blue skies. There's no wind, there's no rain, uh, no flying reptiles, just peace and tranquility. You would be forgiven for completely forgetting that there's a storm literally raging around you. It's that peaceful. Well, David in our psalm is like a man in the eye of the storm. Though the world is raging around him and his enemies are plotting against him, still he is at peace. He says, verse 1, truly my soul finds rest in God. Other translations may say my soul waits in silence for God. Often when something bad happens, our inclination is to immediately jump into action without thinking like the proverbial chicken with its head cut off. 
It doesn't so much matter what we're doing. We just feel like we need to be doing something. Well, let me suggest that this is a form of self-reliance. David is not comforted in the storm because he's doing the best he can or he's working hard to make things work or that he's just doing something. Uh, David is confident. David is at rest. Why? Because he trusts in God. He knows that salvation does not come from within. And he's calm. He puts his trust in the one in whom salvation comes. He says, God is my rock. God is my refuge. No matter how powerful David's enemies might be, whatever the problems are you're facing in life, if the omnipotent creator of the universe is your rock and your salvation, then you can be at peace. And because he is... David can see things clearly. He can look at the world rationally. So look at verse 3 again. Here he sees his problems for what they actually are. He sees them accurately. And he calls them a leaning wall and a tottering fence. In other words, David is grounded on the rock and protected by his fortress. And contrasts that with a, a tottering fence. A, a tottering fence gets blown over every time there's a heavy gust of wind. And I should know, we used to have one on the playground before we took it down at a work day. Every storm we had, it would fall over. It was a useless, dangerous, and annoying impediment. That's, that's the imagery David is giving here to the problems of life. Many people like to flex and show off their power But David reminds us that in the grand scheme of things, the enemies of God are on a leash. And anyone who sets themselves against God is like a tottering fence and a leaning wall. It's only a matter of time before it collapses. So when you are resting on God, the rock of your salvation, you can see the problems of life accurately. Well, let's continue. I want you to look at verses 1 and 2. Because it's here in verses 1 and 2 that he establishes the primary theological truth of our study, the main point of our psalm. What does it say? God is my rock and my salvation. My salvation comes from him. David is at rest. Why is he at rest? Because salvation comes from God. And that puts him at rest. Okay, so we have... One and two, it says that. Look at verses three and four. Here we find turmoil, opposition. These are whatever problems might be present in your life right now. Now, in Hebrew poetry, uh, structure is very important for understanding the meaning of the text. And we see something very interesting here. What do you see in verses five to six? A nearly identical recreation of verses one to two. But what's the difference? In verses 1 to 2, David is proclaiming this truth. In verses 5 to 6, David is commanding this truth to himself. Verse 1, my soul finds rest. Verse 5, my soul find. That's a command. Or in the ESV, it says, my soul waits in silence. And in verse 5, it says, my soul wait in silence for God. Upon encountering the difficulties of life, David reminds himself of the truth he already knows, that God is his rock. 
Rest in God. But back to this structure. Uh, What David has done here is he has created a theological truth sandwich. It's delicious. Uh, His problems there in verses 3 and 4 are sandwiched by the truth about God, which is a comfort to him amid the storm. And so when David first encountered his enemies, he may have felt like he was surrounded by them like a man in the eye of the storm. But the reality of the situation becomes clear as he reflects on the truth about God. The very structure of our psalm is showing us that while we may feel surrounded by our problems in life, the truth is that our problems are surrounded by God. If you know God, if you trust God, you can put your problems in perspective. God is literally sandwiching the problems of life in the structure of the psalm. But sometimes, uh, sometimes children's stories and songs can hammer home these truths in a way that uh, nothing else can. There's an old, uh, there's an old song from VeggieTales. Uh, Many of you millennials probably grew up on it. Maybe some of you millennial parents have, uh, can remember this. Uh, the song was called God is Bigger. Do we have any volunteers? Okay, I'll just... Uh, okay, 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 okay. Way to, way to call my bluff. <laughs> I'll read it. I'm not going to... God is bigger than the boogeyman. That's correct. God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than Godzilla and the monsters on TV. Oh, God is bigger than the boogeyman, and he's watching over you and me. How's that for profundity this morning? Whatever your problems are this morning, hear this. God is bigger. Do you believe this? Because this is where the rubber hits the road and our faith becomes immensely practical as we ask the question, this question, where do you go when crisis hits? And we'll explore that question in our next point. So pick up with me in verse 7 as we go to our second point this morning. My salvation and my honor depend upon God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Surely the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, don't set your heart on them. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. And you reward everyone according to what they have done. Our second point this morning is your God determines your outcome. Uh, The David we met in verses 1 to 6 is unshakable, even in a crisis. He says, even in the storm, God is my fortress, I will not be shaken. And 
course, probably most of us would be willing to affirm this our own, in our own lives. God is my fortress. God is my rock. My soul finds rest in him alone. Verse 7, my salvation depends upon God. But when we go through a crisis, it can actually be an immensely helpful spiritual diagnostic tool. Because it's in a crisis that we can truly find out what it is that we are trusting in. Or let's put it another way. Whether or not you successfully navigate a crisis is determined by the God you are trusting in. Because while we're happy to say that we trust in God when things are going well, it can be a different story when times get tough. Uh, We say that we trust God to meet our needs, but what happens when you lose your job? Uh, We remember the 08 financial crisis. How do you respond to an economic downturn? I'm certainly no economist myself. There's plenty of talking heads talking about the possibility of a recession in the future. I don't know if that's true or not, but what if it is? Do you still trust God when your income and your retirement plummet? Well, we all say that we trust God for our approval. His approval is all that we need. But what happens if you are criticized? Maybe even unfairly criticized. Is his approval still enough at that point? What about when you want something so badly and you do everything you can to get it? And at the end of the day, you fall short and God doesn't give it to you. He says, no, or not yet. Do you believe he still knows what's for you, what's best for you? Do you still trust him? So let me ask you this, where is it that you turn in a crisis? Where is it that you go when things don't go your way? A crisis will show you what or who it is that you are actually trusting in. Because a crisis will drive you to that thing or that person. You will seek help from the God you trust in. So when crisis hits, some people hit the bottle or pills. When hardship comes, many people distract themselves numb with entertainment, TV, or video games. Maybe it's a relationship that you've made into a kind of God, someone you go to to save you from the problems of life, something no relationship could ever support. Well, we see this principle illustrated for us in verses 9 to 10. Let's read that one more time. Surely the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. If David is unshakable in crisis, then in verses 9 to 10, he's presenting to us the kind of person who is shakable. Why? Because this person is trusting in something other than God. This person has a wrong object of faith. This person needs to be reminded to put their trust in God. David here is presenting to us two common idols. Uh, Obviously, there's more than this. 
We just covered some. But these are idols that many will trust in when the times get tough. And if we're willing to put our trust in anything other than God, we're going to be let down. So what are these two idols? The first is power or status. Verse 9. He says, it doesn't matter if you're lowborn or if you're highborn. Your life is but a breath. He says, your status is a lie or a delusion, depending on your translation. If you trust in human beings with power or if you trust in your own power to get yourself out of situations, you're going to be disappointed. Because all authority, all power is derivative and it all comes from God. Human power cannot deliver you in times of trouble. Only God can. Well, the second idol he attacks is the idol of riches. In verse 10, he distinguishes between legitimate and illegitimate riches. Of course, he tells us don't don't, uh, trust in stolen goods or extortion. But he also tells the person who's experiencing affluence for good reasons to be careful. What does he say there in verse 10? He says, Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. In other words, don't trust in your money. Don't love your money. Okay, pastor, but what does that look like practically? How do I know I'm not trusting in my money? Well, there's a slide from 1 Timothy. This This is how Paul instructed the young Timothy to pastor his congregation. He says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So, He tells Timothy, they are not to hope, they're not to trust in their wealth, but instead of hoping and trusting in wealth, they are to place their hope and trust in God alone. Because riches can disappear overnight. So what does it look like to trust in God? To be rich in good deeds, that's that's what he says, to be generous and willing to share. Knowing that God will reward you eternally. So, listen, if God has given you wealth in this life, he didn't give it to you to hoard it. He gave it for you to glorify him by loving others with it. You'll you'll notice that the text didn't say you have to take a vow of poverty. Uh, It doesn't say that you need to sell all of your material possessions and move to a commune. But it says the person who is trusting in God trusts God even with his or her wealth. She is generous toward God. So, don't put your hope in money. Don't look to your 401k for security. Because when it drops, you'll be like a cup of jello on a dashboard of a car on a hot sunny day. Now, if you're trusting in anything other than God, crisis will reveal that. Because when something bad happens, you'll be shaken. So, what is it that makes a person unshakable. How can I find peace and comfort and truth and steadiness even when the storm rages? Well, the answer is by clinging to the rock of ages. So pick up your Bibles again. Look at verse 7. One more time. My salvation 
and my honor depend upon God. He is my mighty rock and my refuge. So what does the salvation depend upon? You? Your pastor? Your parents? Your good works? No. Salvation depends upon God alone. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. It's the same message from Genesis to Revelation. God is the Alpha and He's the Omega. He's the beginning and He's the end. And He has always been in the business of single-handedly saving His people. He doesn't need our help. And that is wonderful news. And this is the beauty of the truth here in verse 7. Christian, when you first believed in Christ, you professed for the very first time that you think God is capable of delivering you from the biggest problems you will ever face in life. Sin and death and judgment. So here's the argument from the greater to the lesser, right? If God can deliver you from death, if he has given you eternal life, why fret about the little problems, the leaning fences, the tottering walls that we face in this life? If God can save you from the big problems in life, he can save you from the silly little ones too. So take comfort. If you are in Christ, the idols that we all have a tendency to trust in cannot save us. But God can. He is able and willing. God is able to save you in a way that your idols can't. Why? Look at verse 11. Power belongs to you, God. The things we trust in are powerless. Where does power reside? It resides with God. And so when we have an issue, our first stop should be to the one who holds all power. By way of example, some of you are avid coffee drinkers. I would put myself in that category. Some of you drink your coffee ridiculously slowly and it gets lukewarm or cold. And nobody wants to drink lukewarm or cold coffee because it's just not enjoyable at that point. Uh, unless I found you're doing it deliberately and then you just call it iced coffee and then it's, it's okay. Uh, but anyway, let's say that you have a, a nice cup of lukewarm coffee and you recognize that that is a problem. I don't want to drink lukewarm coffee. What am I going to do about it? Well, I need someone, I need something to heat my coffee. So you say, I know what I'll do. I'll take my coffee, I'll open the refrigerator door, and I'll put it in the refrigerator, close the door, and I'll come back in an hour. So you do that. You come back, you pull your coffee out, you put it up to your lips, and you spew it out. Because your coffee is even colder than it was before. You say, well, that didn't work. Here's what I'll do. Say, I'm going to go take this. I'm going to open the door again. I'm going to put it back in the refrigerator. This time I'm going to wait for two hours, and I'm going to try the coffee again. Maybe that time it'll be hot. So you, you do that. You come back to the refrigerator. Uh, you grab your coffee. You take a sip, and you spew it all over the floor again because it's even colder than it was before. Now you have two problems. You've got a puddle of coffee on the floor, and your coffee is still cold. Well, this is kind of what it's like for us when we go to anything other than God with our problems. The refrigerator does not have the power to 
heat your coffee. The idolatrous refrigerator. What you need is the microwave of God's loving power toward you in Jesus Christ. So, when we have a need, when we have a problem we're facing, go to the one who is able to fix it. He did, after all, create everything by speaking it into existence. And so he's able, but he's also willing. Why is he willing? Because you're such an awesome person? No, and that's good news. He is able to save, and he's willing to save because he loves you, period, end of story. That is God's motivation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He didn't give his only son so that he could love the world. It began with God's love and it ends with God's love. He loved you when you were unlovable and he still does. And he accepts you not because you've worked so hard for him. He accepts you because of the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, who shed that blood in the first place because he loves you. This means you didn't do anything to earn his salvation. And it means you can't do anything to lose it. Because it is grounded in his love for you, demonstrated on the cross, not in your performance as a Christian. I mean, just consider the great lengths to which God went to save you from sin. If that is true, can he not handle the burdens of this life for you? Look at verse 12. With you, Lord, is unfailing love. That's covenant love. If you are in Christ, God loves you with a love that cannot fail. He is bigger than your problems. But of course, when it comes to many things, actions speak louder than words. It's one thing if I tell you that I love you, but if I tell you that without ever demonstrating that, then you have cause for questioning whether that's true. But if I tell you and I show you, then you have cause for believing me. Well, Paul makes the same exact point in Romans 8. In this section, God, we see that God has shown us and God tells us that he loves us. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God and who is interceding for us. So then, who shall separate us from the unfailing love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sore? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's covenant love. Not even death can separate you from God's unfailing love for you. 
This is a love which saves entirely by his power and not yours. A love which gave that which was most precious to redeem an enemy. It is the inexplicable love of Christ which saves sinners from death and from all the other problems we face. So, in studying this psalm, we've come face to face with a God who has all power and a God who loves you and is willing to care for you. If those two things are true, then my hope for you today is this. Read verse 8. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Trust in him at all times. That means the good times, the bad times, and everything in between. Secondly, he says, pour out your hearts to him. You know, sometimes I'll talk to people and they'll, they'll say, I'm, uh, I'm facing this and this. Uh, I'm going through these things. And I'll ask, have you prayed about it? Uh, well, no. <laughs> well, that's, that's option one, brothers and sisters. Go to God. Pour out your heart to him. How is it that we express our trust to God? It is by praying to him. That's how we express that we believe he is able and mighty to save. I mean, knowing the character of God, knowing what he gave to save you, we just discussed this in Romans 8, don't you think he has a vested interest in your well-being? Don't you think he loves and cares for you? I mean, do you think he minds if you come and you pour out your heart to him? When you're going through difficulty? I don't want to be presumptuous, but I think that that would make God rather happy. He would certainly prefer that to you going and trusting other things to fix your problems. So, if you would like to be unshakable, if you would like to trust God in the midst of the storm, Reflect on his power and on his love and trust God. And whatever it is that you face this week, take it to God. He wants to hear from you. He wants to hear from you. I'll say that again. God wants to hear from you. You guys are not acting like Baptists. Thank you. God wants to hear from you. Because he loves you. And because he is the only one who can do anything about it. The Lord alone is our salvation. He is our rock and our refuge. An ever-present help in trouble. Let's go to him. Let's pray.